0: So, Steve said to, to go and have a look at, um, or open up, the last bit of Colossians, um, and you're very welcome to do that, but I might save you some time, um, in that the original preaching plan was to sort of pick it up in Colossians 4 through until the end of Colossians, and that's a great thing to do, and I advise you all to go and read the last bit of Colossians, but what I'm focusing on this morning is three words. Three words at the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And hopefully it will sort of become clear. If it hasn't become clear then I'm very sorry and there's (laughs) probably better talks you can listen to on the last bit of Colossians. Um, But I wanna ask how many of you still write letters? Kirsten, you write letters. Anyone else? Once a year. Once a year. Yeah, Yeah. how many of you receive letters? And I'm not talking about bills and. (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, I'm thinking about the idea of writing a letter. Yeah, writing a letter on paper that you put in the post and send to someone. Um, Because I think for some of us, the idea of writing a letter is sort of a dying form of communication. It's a throwback to days before email and WhatsApp and instant messaging and all that sort of stuff. And maybe for others, Joe, when was the last time you wrote a letter? Can you remember the last time you wrote a letter? I can't remember. Yeah. See, for some of them, for some younger people, it might be that letters are something so foreign and antiquated that it's just not really a thing. There was a guy called Sean Usher, and back in 2013, he started a Twitter account. a website um, called Letters of Note, which is ironic that in trying to save the written word he opens a website, but anyway, he he opened a website called Letters of Note, and it's a small but um, burgeoning dedication and a homage to letters that have survived and should be celebrated. Well, today we arrive at the end of one of our own Letters of Note, and it's a (coughs) final look at the last words that Paul writes to the church in Colossi, And like all good letters of note, the author leaves us with a good sign-off of note. So sign-off is what you'd... I don't need to explain what a sign-off is, but it's the final utterance, parting, greeting, or insult, depending on the tone of the letter. And sign-offs, they give us an insight into how the writer intends to lead the reader. Oscar Wilde used to just write, truly yours. At the bottom of his email, oh, email, bottom <laughs> <of> his email. <laughs> um, with another one was with truest with truest wishes for your health and happiness. Dot dot dot. Believe me, was a favourite of Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, which even now feels more like a threat than a greeting. <laughs> and Mark Twain, the other famous author, used to have a habit of signing off malicious letters with the innocent signs, innocent sounding. Adieu, 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 certain in the knowledge that most recipients wouldn't understand it to be a paraphrase of the curse Hamlet delivers to his uncle at the end of the play. <laughs> so what can we read into the sign-off of Paul's letter to the Colossians? Now this is the bit that I'm focusing on this morning. Colossians four eighteen reads, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So it's those three words in the middle. (coughs) Remember my chains. Now firstly, to write in your own hand is a personal touch, something that Paul did a couple of times across his letters. And there's something that exists in a handwritten note or signature that connects the reader with the writer. One of my favourite nuggets of history is... um, is the abdication letter that Tsar Nicholas II signed in 1917, which signalled the end of the Romanov dynasty in Russia. And whereas before then, all imperial documents were signed with what was called iron gall ink, and then they were stamped with the imperial seal, Nicholas signed his abdication letter in pencil, a sign for all who read it that this was forced upon him and given a second chance, he would, he would undo it in an instant. So likewise, we see Paul's signature at the end of this letter to the Colossians, and he writes it from a prison cell. And so if we picture Paul, we can imagine writing, left to right, his chains clinking across the table as they're dragged across the bench. A very audible and visible reminder to him his final message to the Colossians should be to remember the chains that he finds himself in. So it's three words, remember my chains. And it's a sign off that is very different to all of the other final greetings and words that Paul writes to every other church that we know that Paul writes to. So not including the people that he wrote to, Timothy, Philemon, and Titus, the churches that he wrote to, to the church in Rome, The greeting that Paul leaves at the end is, To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, The grace of Lord Jesus be with you, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. In his second letter to the Corinthians, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. To the Galatians, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. You can see a pattern. To the Ephesians, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. To the Philippians, all God's people here send you greetings. The grace of Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And to the Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. And yet, to the Colossians, remember my chains. Now, perhaps the abruptness of the sign-off is a result of Paul's emotional and physical distance between himself and the church in Colossae. The Colossians were the only church that Paul wrote to that he did not have first-hand knowledge of. He hadn't been to visit Colossae. He didn't know them. Compare this to having innate knowledge of Roman society growing up as he did a Roman citizen. He visited Thessalonica. He visited Philippi. He visited Corinth. He visited Galatia. He spent two years in Ephesus returning back through Corinth and Philippi. Yet he never visited Colossae. And this bears out in the way that Paul speaks to them. Back at the start of the letter to the Colossians, we read in chapter chapter 1, verse 2, Paul refers to the brothers and sisters in Colossae. Throughout the remaining four chapters of Paul's letter, there is not another reference to what we would call familial language. Brothers, sisters. Compare that to 13 references in Romans. 36 in the combined letters to the Corinthians, 11 to the Galatians, 8 to the Philippians, 23 to the Thessalonians. Were we to categorise Paul's letter to the Colossians, we wouldn't class it as a nostalgic catch-up between old friends, emotive and impassioned, as we might read with some of the others. We read in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that he talks about he's distressed at being torn away from people, his brothers and sisters. But Paul's letter to the Colossians, from top to bottom, from start to finish, from the first word to the last word, is a letter of purpose. And it's a letter of purpose to a people that are in need of guidance and direction. And Paul delivers on that purpose up until the final lines the letter. So this morning I'm going to just explore a little bit of some of the inferences and meanings that I read into the sign-off of Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's those three words, remember my chains. Because firstly, those three words, remember my chains, it's a call back to the Colossians of what it means to live the life of a disciple. As we discussed over the last few months, the church in Colossae, whilst being praised for their faithfulness, as Epaphras had communicated to Paul, and as Paul has congratulated them on, they were, they were misguided. They were adding and complimenting, or trying to add things and compliment things to the ministry of Jesus. And if we remember back to the first few chapters of Colossians, Paul details in poetic form the supremacy of Christ. He elevates different references from scriptures. We hear of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, before all things and in all things. And baked into Paul's fullest understanding of Christ, Paul brings the Colossians back to the realisation and understanding that Christ's supremacy is predicated on the reality that is also a suffering Saviour. For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him, this is 1 Colossians 9, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And it is a suffering that, as disciples of Christ, we and the Colossians partake in. Now, we looked at this a few weeks ago. This isn't to top up or to boost anything that was deficient in Christ's sacrifice, but that by partaking in suffering for the gospel, we are aligning ourselves with Christ, that rejoicing in the suffering for the gospel, as Paul did, (coughs) is to experience more fully the sacrificial love that Christ has for each one of us. And we need to be really clear that we will all suffer and should be prepared to suffer for the gospel. (coughs) Paul's letter, um, second letter to Timothy says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By wanting to live a godly life, we are signing up to persecution in the process. Jesus stated clearly what it means to follow him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And our modern understanding of the phrase, take up their cross and follow me, is often inadequate. We water it down. It doesn't, we don't actually seem to mean what it actually means. In Jesus' day, the cross symbolised death. When someone carried a cross, they had already been condemned to die. Jesus said that in order to follow him, one must be willing to die. We won't all die a martyr's death. We will not all be imprisoned, beaten or tortured for our faith. So what kind of death did Jesus mean? Well, In Galatians, his letter to the Galatians says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. To follow Christ means we die to our own way of doing things. We consider our our will, our rights, our passions, our goals... To be crucified on the cross with him. Our right to sort of direct our own lives and decide what we do is dead to us. And death involves <coughs> suffering. The flesh doesn't want to die. Dying to self is painful and it goes against all of our own natural inclination. But we cannot follow both Christ and our own wants <coughs> and desires a final call to remember my chains is to bring to the forefront of the mind that faith is something for which those who follow follow Christ should be prepared to suffer. If we look through the book, it was the reminder that the Colossians needed their preoccupation with human rules had seen them drift from the true essence of following Jesus. They become preoccupied with how their actions would be perceived and understood. They'd become concerned that their acceptance by God depended on what they did, not what Christ had already done. In asking them to remember his chains, Paul asks them to remember the reasons for his chains. That to embrace the life of a disciple is to embrace a life of suffering for the gospel. Secondly, an invitation to remember Paul's chains is an invitation to reflect on the instances by which suffering is, in itself, an opportunity for the furtherance of the kingdom. Throughout his ministry, as we read in Acts, Paul is arrested and imprisoned on three occasions. We read the three occasions, there might have been more, He might have been mm-hmm. detained, but... There's three occasions. The second of these occasions we read of in Acts 21. Paul is visiting Jerusalem. And he's noticed by some Jews from the province of Asia. And they cause a scene. And the subsequent arrest of Paul sets in motion a series of events. That take place over a longer period of time. In which Paul, despite his suffering. And in spite of his chains speaks the truth of Jesus to anyone he is presented to. Having been arrested, Paul addressed the gathered crowd and he shares with them the miraculous story of his conversion. (coughs) He's then presented before the Sanhedrin, so he stands in front of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and declares before them that his hope for the resurrection has been fulfilled in King Jesus. What then follows is a transfer to Caesarea and an audience with someone called Felix, who is the Roman official in charge of Judea. And we read that multiple conversations take place. Detail in Acts 23, (coughs) it says several days later Felix came with his wife, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is then placed before someone called Festus. Festus is the person who replaces Felix. They're all quite fun names. But then Paul is given an audience with King Agrippa. And Paul is allowed to speak and recounts again his miraculous conversion. <coughs> and the king sits and patiently listens. Acts 26, verse 27 picks up the story Paul asks the king, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. The book of Acts continues to tell the story of Paul's ministry. His travels over land and sea, through storms, through shipwreck in Malta, to being finally placed under house arrest in Rome. <coughs> and the final lines of the book of Acts, it seems quite apt that we're dealing with the final lines of books. The final lines of the book of Acts reads, For two whole years Paul stayed and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, with all boldness and without hindrance. Remember my chains. Or perhaps in the ministry of Paul, it's not remember my chains, but remember that despite my chains, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been presented to Roman governors, to temple leaders, to baying crowds, to Pharisees, to Sadducees, to kings and common men. Remember these chains, but remember (coughs) that these chains cannot silence or hinder the furtherance of the kingdom of God. The author, Victor Hugo, wrote, There is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. In the case of the Gospel of Jesus Christ that idea's time is now and always and forever. We live in the reality of a relationship with a living Saviour and so every moment is an opportunity to see lives changed by Him. This means that every moment of happiness and every moment of gladness and every moment of good times that we experience, as well as every moment of pain and distress and anguish, is an opportunity to see the furtherance of the kingdom. Tim Keller recounts in one of his books a story of a man who seemed about to lose both his career and his family. The man says, I always knew in principle that Jesus is all you need to get through, but you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. To remember Paul's chains is to remember that every moment, whether we are suffering or basking in the sunshine, Jesus is the constant and the only true person we can rely on. He is all we have and he is all we need. So how do we remember Paul's chains? Perhaps like the Colossians, we must be reminded again of the cost of following Jesus, that to follow Jesus is not to choose the easy path, that being a follower of Jesus comes at a cost to us, it comes at a cost to our comfort, to our popularity and our reputation. That to suffer for the gospel is to associate with Christ's sufferings for the world. Perhaps we should look at the chains we find ourselves in. The struggles we face. The suffering we live with and in. And ask that it might be used as an opportunity to see the furtherance of the kingdom of God. That like Paul we see the chains we find ourselves in as an opportunity to present to those around us. The difference Jesus makes in our lives. When I started looking at the last bit of Colossians. And I was reading again. And I read it again and again. I read the last chapter of Colossians again and again. And it was this verse that just jumped out to me. This remember my chains. And you might think that I've done it to death. And you might think that what are three words. But as I came upon it again and as I read it again and as I read it again I couldn't shake the reminder that ultimately to remember the chains is to remember the ultimate victory that Jesus Christ has over every power of sin and darkness that exists in the world. To read back in Acts we read of Paul's escape Paul and Silas's escape from the Prison in Philippi. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. In the countercultural, upside down kingdom of Jesus Christ, the symbols we associate with death and demise are instead symbols of triumph. The empty cross is no longer a symbol of execution. But a symbol of the defeat of death. The symbols of the bread and the wine are not reminders of the misery of death in the broken body, but the reality of amazing grace. And ultimately, the chains that we remember, the chains that Paul asks us to remember, are not a symbol of captivity, but a constant reminder to glorify and honour the one who breaks every chain